Great to greet you on another beautiful spring morning in central Indiana. Glad that you're here today. Want to greet all the folks that are joining us online, wherever you might be. We're glad to have you as a part of our service this morning. Grab your Bible and go with me to the Gospel of John. And when you get to the Gospel of John, find the fourth chapter with me this morning. While you're turning there, let me just mention what a great Easter weekend we had uh, this past week. I hope that you were able to be a part of it. It was a long weekend. It began with Good Friday service. And then Saturday morning, we had a community Easter egg hunt that we had to move indoors because of the weather. And uh, it's hard to count the number of people that come to an event like that. My best guess is there are probably around 1,500 people. And we met a lot of folks in our community who don't have any kind of a church home. And that was a a great blessing. Then we had Saturday night service and we had three Sunday morning services and it was a, it was a big, big success. And I want to thank everybody who was a part of that. I want to begin by thanking uh, my staff. Can we give a round of applause to our staff? We don't, we don't do that often enough. We have a really great staff here at Mount Pleasant. Many of them serve in the shadows and they don't get a lot of recognition and I appreciate them so much. And then thank you to all of you who volunteered with us this last weekend. And it was a, a historic Easter weekend because, as I told you, we didn't just have services celebrating the resurrection here, but we had them in Old Southside. In fact, uh, at Impact Old Southside, we had our very first Sunday morning worship service down there. We put a tent up because the, the building we purchased and remodeling is not complete yet, and that was great. And then we had resurrection services at Impact Fairfax and Impact Bethany. It was a great, great blessing. We've been working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew for about two and a half years. And even though we've taken some breaks along the way, we're pretty deep into the study. We are in the 21st chapter of uh, Matthew. But I'm going to take a one-week break this morning to share a message called The Power of a Conversation. And the reason why is because one of my priorities for 2019 is to continually remind all of us of the importance of spiritual influence, which is the term we use to describe our strategy as a church to reach people who are lost. We have what we call core four strategies here when it comes to living out the vision and the mission of our church, and they are compelling worship, what we do when we gather on the weekend, relational discipleship, what we do when people gather together in home groups and Bible studies, serving others across the street and around the world. We did that together in mass a few weeks ago when we gathered across the street and packed over 400,000 meals to send to our mission partner in Cuba. That's just one example. And then spiritual influence. And spiritual influence happens. We live out that strategy when we make the commitment to identify someone in the network of our lives who is not a Christian. And then we commit to doing three things with that person. Number one, develop a friendship. Number two, discover their story. And number three, discern next steps, which is just a way to talk about letting God lead you on how you can point that person to Christ. It's something that's relatively new to our church. We rolled this out last fall. Uh, and the reason why is because we've discovered that the methods of evangelism that we've used in the past are not nearly as effective today as they once were. And today, evangelism is more effective when it is relational. And so every one of us, if you're a Christian, every one of us needs to be involved in this process of spiritual influence. We need to embrace this responsibility because God is a seeking God. His heart beats for lost people. In fact, let me just give you a brief picture of that. Uh, and we'll start from the very beginning. You know, when God created the world, he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they were the climax of his creation. The Bible tells us that God enjoyed a perfect relationship and a perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve. But all that changed when you get to Genesis chapter 3 because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin. 
And when sin entered in the world, it separated them from that perfect relationship and that perfect fellowship that they had with God. But in spite of that sin, the Bible tells us that God continued to seek and pursue Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam's eyes were opened and he immediately knew that something had changed, that things were different. In fact, look at these words on the screen from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. This is recorded after Adam and Eve sinned. We read this, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, everybody look at me for just a moment. That's evidence that they knew that things had changed. They had never hidden from God before, but now they're hiding from God. They went from walking and talking with God in a face-to-face relationship with God to hiding from God when they heard him in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So what we see is that when sin entered into the world and changed Adam and Eve's relationship with God, it's not Adam that's roaming around through the Garden of Eden crying out, God, where are you? God, where are you? What we find is Adam hiding from God, but it's God who comes into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? He's a seeking God. From the very beginning, he's been a seeking and a pursuing God. He's a seeker of men. He's a seeker of sinful and fallen Men, this is what God is all about. And you can see that in every part of his unfolding story. God created man, and when man sinned, it was God who went seeking after him. A little later in the book of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 12 now, and you see God calling a man named Abram. We know him best as Abraham. And when God called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he made a threefold promise to him. He said, I'll give you and your descendants a new land. I'll make you and your descendants into a great nation. And I'll use you and your descendants to one day bless all the peoples on the face of the earth. And so ultimately, Abraham became the father of the nation of Israel. And it was God's plan in the beginning to use the nation of Israel as a kind of a missionary nation to redeem the rest of the world. It was never God's plan to create and isolate the nation of Israel if they were the only, as if they were the only people that he cared about. It was never his plan for Israel to be the only right and the only redeemed people in the world. They were to be a missionary nation, a missionary people that God would use ultimately to reach the rest of the world. You see that reality throughout the Old Testament. You see that as God's plan throughout the Old Testament. In fact, look at these words on the screen from Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6. This is a description of the nation of Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation, note this, to the ends of the earth. Well, who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are anyone who's not a Jew, the whole rest of the world. And so from the beginning of time, The great desire of God's heart has been to reach and redeem lost people. He showed that in the garden as he sought after Adam and Eve after they sinned. He showed that in the creation of Israel and his desire to use them as a missionary nation to reach the rest of the world. And ultimately, he showed that when he sent Jesus, his own son, into the world. We've talked a lot lately about how Jesus came into the world for the express purpose of dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, but Jesus accomplished other things while he was in the world, and one of them is when Jesus was in the world, he showed us the reality of what God is like. He showed us what God looks like. And so when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world seeking lost people because that's the heartbeat of God. When Zacchaeus was converted in Luke chapter 19, at the end of the story, Jesus says these words, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. 
Jesus came into the world to put the loving, seeking, redeeming heart of God on display in order to reach lost people because God's heart beats for lost people. What are the most familiar words in all the Bible? You could give different answers, but you could argue that the most familiar words in all the Bible are John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, that's the heart of God. And it's been on display from Genesis chapter 3 all the way up until this moment in history. God wants us to worship Him. The Bible teaches us that. God wants us to experience fellowship with each other. The Bible teaches us that. God wants us to grow deeper in our faith. The Bible teaches us that. God wants us to serve Him by serving others. The Bible teaches us that. But first and foremost, God wants us to be involved in reaching people who are lost, which is something that every single Christian can be involved in when it is a relational approach. And that's at the heart of our strategy of spiritual influence because, as I said earlier, we live out spiritual influence when we identify someone in the network of our life who is a long way from God and we make a commitment to do three things, develop a friendship, discover their story, and discern next steps. And that's something that every single one of us can do. Every single one of us. I know every time I say that, there are people who are listening to me and say, well, it's not me. I can't do that. But you know what? You're just fooling yourself. Every single one of us needs to embrace this call of spiritual influence, of sharing the good news about Jesus with somebody from a relational approach. This was something that Jesus did. And I want to show you an example of that this morning. And so, if you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 4, I want you to go, and you're able, I want you to go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Having said all of that, having set up the message like that, I want to show you an example of how Jesus was involved in spiritual influence, personal evangelism from a purely relational standpoint. Now, if you're familiar with your Gospels, you know this is the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's a lengthy story. It goes from verse 1 of John chapter 4 all the way down to about verse 42, but I'm not going to read the entire passage. All I'm going to do is read the first seven verses. We'll read a few verses more when we get deeper into the message, but you follow along as I read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but His disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Everybody look at me. He left Judea, which would be down here, and He traveled back to Galilee, which was up here, and in between was a place called Samaria. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Suhar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink. All right, there it is. That's all I'm going to read. You can go ahead and be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. What I want to focus on for just a few minutes is the power of spiritual conversations. As I mentioned, there's a great deal of truth in this story because it's a lengthy story, but I'm just going to look at the simple and the natural way Jesus engaged this woman in a spiritual conversation. But before I do that, there's something very fascinating about this to me in verses 1 through 3. Look back at those verses. 
The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Everyone look up here. That's John the Baptist that they're referencing there who had a, a group of disciples that followed him. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. I find this so interesting that as soon as Jesus learned that the Pharisees, who were the ultimate when it came to being religious people, as soon as Jesus learned that the Pharisees had learned that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, Jesus decided, I'm out of here. Why? Why do you think that was? What's the significance of that? Well, I think it was based on his previous relationship with the Pharisees, he knew that they were going to want to come and talk to him about that, that they were going to want to come and try to engage him in a religious conversation about why he and his disciples were gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist was. And Jesus was sick and tired of having religious conversations with religious people. Let me say it like this. He was sick and tired of having pointless religious conversations with religious people. Is there anybody here who can understand that? You ever had arguments and debates and discussions with people over religious things that never led to any conclusion? And Jesus had a multitude of those with the religious leaders, and he didn't want to have another one. So what did he do? He said, I'm out of here. And what do we learn about that? What we learn, or what do we learn from that? What we learn from that is Jesus is far more interested in spiritual conversations than he is religious conversations, because religious conversations will often revolve around the things that separate us, while spiritual conversations will often revolve around things that can unite us. And so he leaves Judea and travels to Galilee, and he passes through Samaria on the way there. And as he's in Samaria, he meets a woman at a well, and the encounter that he has with her teaches us some important truths about how to have spiritual conversations with people, which is a really big part of living out this strategy of spiritual influence. And so if you'd like to take notes, write down next to number one, the first thing Jesus teaches us. Spiritual conversations happen, note this, in ordinary places with ordinary people. Spiritual conversations happen in ordinary places with ordinary people. Let's not miss the simplicity of this scene. As Jesus travels through Samaria on his way from Judea to Galilee, at one point he stops to rest at a place that's identified as Jacob's well, and while he's there, the rest of the disciples have gone into town to buy food. We're going to see that when we read verse 8 in just a moment. While he's there by himself, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and Jesus starts up a conversation with her by asking this simple question, will you give me a drink? Six words, will you give me a drink? Now, why did Jesus do that? Well, first of all, friends, let's not overthink it. He was thirsty. He had stopped to rest at this well because he was tired and because he was thirsty. And what that does is it reminds us that spiritual conversations happen in ordinary places with ordinary people. I told you that spiritual influence is more effective today, personal evangelism. When we talk about spiritual influence, we're talking about personal evangelism. Spiritual influence is more effective today when it is relational. It used to be that our personal evangelism was transactional. You know, I used to believe that if I got 30 minutes with someone, 
and I got to talk to them, then I could get them to sign the bottom line when it came to salvation. And it was kind of more like a transaction than anything else. And I can understand why a lot of Christians wouldn't want to be involved in personal evangelism or spiritual influence today if it was transactional because that means you've got to be aggressive. That means you've got to be bold. That means you've got to have some rehearsed presentation and you've got to be ready to answer questions and you've got to be on, man. You've got to be good in that moment. I used to do that a lot. Probably in the first 15 to 20 years that I was involved in full-time ministry, I did that at least two nights a week. I would leave my family and I would go out and I would knock on people's doors with the hope that they would invite me in so that I could find 30 minutes where I could make the presentation to them about Jesus and maybe get them to put their faith and trust in Christ. But if I'm going to be honest with you, I will tell you that even though I did that for so long, I really did it more out of a sense of obligation and a sense of guilt than a sense of comfort and calling. Because knocking on the door of someone that I didn't know, who didn't know me, to have the most important conversation that I could ever have with somebody was oftentimes not very comfortable. Now, in contrast, let me tell you something that's very comfortable for me. I'm not uncomfortable at all when it comes to talking to someone. I'm not uncomfortable at all when it comes to initiating a conversation with someone, even someone that I don't know. And it really doesn't matter where I'm at. It can be the most ordinary place for somebody I've never seen before. And I don't have any problems having a conversation with them. On the Friday before Easter, Sandy and I were in Meyer. We were buying uh, treats to put in the Easter baskets of our grandchildren. We, we got in line and there was a woman in front of me who was an older woman, older than me, but clearly she was a grandmother and I discerned that because I was looking in her shopping cart and her shopping cart was just packed with treats. I mean, she had those ice cream drumsticks, you know what I'm talking about? Those really, really delicious ice cream drumsticks. And she had Hostess cupcakes and she had Hostess Twinkies and she had, I can't remember, Hostess something else. And then she had about six bags of candy, chocolate candy, Easter egg, you know, kind of candy, and then some little treats. And I was just, I was just standing there looking at her, her, her basket, and I walked up next to her and I said, hey, I want to come to your house when we get out of here. And she looked at me and she smiled and we started talking and she looked in our, our shopping cart and we started talking about how fun it was to be a grandparent and how fun it was to just spoil your grandchildren rotten and those kinds of things. We had the nicest, most natural conversation for the next few minutes standing there in line and then she got her receipt and she walked away and who knows, I may never see her again, but it was so easy. And I do that kind of thing all the time. Probably some of you are the same way. I'm not uncomfortable having conversations with people, even people I've never met before, sometimes in the most ordinary places. And that's what we're talking about here. When Jesus was sitting at Jacob's well in Samaria, he initiated a conversation with a woman he had never met before. He didn't stay where he was in Judea because he didn't want to get into another pointless religious conversation with religious people who weren't going to listen to a single thing that he said because they believed they were right about everything. But he was very comfortable having a spiritual conversation with an ordinary woman in an ordinary setting. Why? Because Jesus knows, and this is something that all of us need to understand, Jesus knows that everyone has a story that ultimately, if you talk about it long enough, will point to their need for God even if they don't know it. And so spiritual conversations happen with ordinary people 
in ordinary places. That is, look at me, that is not something to be frightened of. The second thing Jesus teaches us in this story, right down next to number two, is spiritual conversations happen when we take the initiative. Here was Jesus sitting at this well, and when the Samaritan woman comes to drink water, or to draw water, he has this life-changing conversation with her because he took the initiative to ask her for a drink. That's how it all began. Now, that might not seem like a very big deal as we read it today, but it was a really big deal. What Jesus did in asking this woman for a drink was a really big deal in his day from a cultural standpoint. It was bold, and it was bold for three reasons. First of all, because she was a woman, and in ancient days, men didn't have casual conversations with women because they looked down on women. I think I've told you before that in ancient days, Jewish men would pray this prayer. Literally, they would pray this prayer. They would say, God, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. And that's not to be funny. That's what they prayed. Because in ancient days, women had no place in the order of life. They had no respect. They had no regard. They weren't even noticed most of the time. It was bold because she was a woman. It was bold, number two, because she was a Samaritan, and Jews hated Samaritans. I don't have time to give you a detailed explanation, but Samaritans were a mixed race of people that resulted from intermarriages between Jews and foreigners, something that God forbid. No self-respecting Jew, as a result, would have anything to do with a Samaritan because they were half-breeds. Most self-respecting Jews would not even have done what Jesus did in traveling from Judea to Galilee. They wouldn't have gone straight north through Samaria. They would have traveled all the way around Samaria, so they wouldn't even step a foot on this land. It was bold because she was a woman. It was bold because she was a Samaritan. And listen to me close. It was bold because she was a sinner. Now, we don't know, we, you and me, in reading the story, we don't know that she's a sinner until the conversation unfolds a little bit further. And down in verses 17 and 18, it's revealed to us that this woman had lived a promiscuous life and was living a promiscuous life. But Jesus knows that right from the beginning. Why does Jesus know that? Well, the easy answer is because Jesus was God, right? Jesus was God, so he knows everything. In fact, here's an interesting thing about the Gospel of John. If there's one characteristic or theme of the Gospel of John that stands out above all the rest as it tells the story of Jesus, it, it shows us over and over again in very specific and deliberate ways that Jesus is God. The Gospel of John focuses more on the divinity or the divine nature of Jesus than any other gospel. And so first, he knew that she was a sinful woman. He knew the reality of her story and her life because he was God. But second, he knew that she was sinful just by observation. Let me tell you what I mean. She's drawing water from this well at the sixth hour of the day, which, have, which would have been right around noon. Now, in those days, drawing water was the responsibility of women, and they did it normally at dawn or at dusk because those were the cooler hours of the day. They avoided the heat, and they did it when it was as cool as possible. In addition to, to that, drawing water for women was one of the few opportunities they had for any kind of a social life because they would gather around the well and they had an opportunity to talk to each other and to share information and news with each other. If you look at this from a purely geographical standpoint, we know that this woman lived in the town of Suhar in Samaria. We know that she was drawing water from Jacob's well, which was a well-known well 
from a biblical standpoint. And if you put those things together, you will see that this well, from a geographic standpoint, was not the closest well to her home in the town that she lived in. And so she was traveling a greater distance than she needed to, to a well to draw water, not at dawn, not at dusk, but in the middle of the day. Why? Why? Because she was a sinful woman. And she was doing what she could do to avoid contact with other women. It was worth it to her. She would rather endure the heat of the sun than the heat of their judgment and the heat of their gossip. And Jesus knows all of this. And so Jesus takes the initiative here by asking her for a drink. Think of it like this. He opened up the door to the possibility of a spiritual conversation by asking her for a drink. And once the door was open, he began to speak to her about spiritual things. Once the opportunity was there, he began to speak to her about spiritual things. We stopped reading a moment ago in verse 7. Look back at your Bibles, John chapter 4 and verse 7, and follow along as I read down to verse 10. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Six words. Verse 8. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, what I just told you a moment ago. Jesus answered her in verse 10. Jesus answered her. Now here's where it turns into a spiritual conversation. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And all because Jesus took the initiative by asking this woman to give him a drink. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about for a moment. Where is some ordinary place that you go every week and you encounter ordinary people? Where would that be for you? Some people like to go to like Starbucks or some coffee shop. I'm not a coffee drinker. I never, ever go in places like that. But some people will spend their entire day there. Maybe it's at the grocery store. Maybe it's at work in a break room. Maybe it's when you sit in your lawn chair on the side of the soccer field for soccer practice. Maybe it's where you go to engage in some kind of a hobby that you're involved in. Where is some ordinary place you go every week and encounter ordinary people? If you can identify that place, then you have a place where you can be involved in spiritual influence by simply being willing to trust in the power of a conversation. And you know what? You're not Jesus. So you don't have to go from, will you give me a drink to, I can give you living water. It doesn't have to be that way for you. But you can be involved in a spiritual conversation. It might take some time to unfold, but you can do it. And not only can you do it, you need to do it. You absolutely need to do it. Let me give you a third truth about spiritual conversations that we learn from this encounter. Spiritual conversations happen when we listen well. That might sound strange, but probably the most important aspect of having a spiritual conversation with someone is being willing to really listen to them, not talk to them, not dominate them, 
with your conversation, but by being willing to listen to them so you can hear what they're saying, not just the words that they speak, but sometimes the cry of their heart. Let's pick the story back up in verse 11. So Jesus begins by asking the woman if she would give him a drink of water. Then the conversation goes on and it takes a spiritual turn when he talks about the ability to give her living water in verse 10. Look at verses 11 through 15. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in verse 15, this woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, remember what we already know about this woman, friends. She's coming to draw water in the middle of the day instead of the traditional times of dawn or dusk. She's coming to this particular well, even though it's not the closest well to her town, because she's clearly avoiding people. And she's clearly avoiding people because she's conscious of the realities of her life. Maybe I should say of the mistakes of her life. And so when Jesus hears her say in verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water, he understands that he's hearing the cry of her heart. He's hearing the guilt and the shame and the heartache of a broken woman. So what does he do? And at this point, I don't even believe she understands what Jesus is talking about yet. But what does he do? Well, he breaks the conversation wide open by saying this to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come back. Why did he do that? Well, if you know the story, he did it because he understands that it's primarily relational stuff. It's relational mistakes that has led this woman to this spot. And so he says the one thing that he knows will get everything about her life out in the open. And that's exactly what happened. Look at verses 17 and 18. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now everything about her life is in the open. You know what he's done? He's discovered her story. That's what he's done. Have you ever noticed that most people will tell you just about anything there is to know about them if you'll just listen? Surely I'm not the only person who has that experience. Most people will tell you everything there is to know about them if you will just listen. I remember getting uh, summons for jury duty once when I lived in Oklahoma. And I've got called for jury duty in everywhere I've lived, in Oklahoma and Texas and Indiana. And normally I'll go and when they find out I'm a pastor, that's it, that's done. I'm back in my car on my way because I don't usually get called. Only place I've ever gotten called for jury duty in all the places I've ever lived is right here in central Indiana. Woo! <laughs> Had to spend an entire week down at the Johnson County Courthouse one time a few years ago. I didn't mind it, but I had to. 
Now, I got called for jury duty, and I went downtown to Tulsa, to the Tulsa County Courthouse to see if I was going to get called, and it ended up that I sat in the basement of the Tulsa County Courthouse for the next four days, which was problematic for me because I still had a responsibility uh, as a pastor. And in the church I served in Oklahoma, I preached two sermons every week. I preached a sermon every Wednesday night for Wednesday night service, and I preached a sermon every Sunday morning, and I had to get those written. And so I was taking all my work down there with me, and my Bible had some reference books and everything that I needed to write those sermons, I found a place in the basement. There was a little desk, kind of a cubby there, and I sat down with my back to everyone else, and I, I did my work during the day. One of the days I was sitting there, there was a group of people that had somehow formed in, in a circle, almost a perfect circle around me, people who had never met before, complete strangers, and they started to have conversations with each other, and I listened I couldn't help but hear what they were talking about. And they talked about their marriages, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They talked about their children, the good, the bad, and the ugly, their job, the good, the bad, and the ugly, their personal finances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you can go on and on and on. And these were a group of people who had never met each other before but were sharing everything there was about their, that they could share about their lives. And at the end of the day, what they were saying, each and every one of them, was my life is not all that I hoped it would be. In that basement of that courthouse... One of the most important parts of having a conversation with someone is being willing to listen to them, which is what Jesus was willing to do. And listen, it, it ended up not just changing this woman's life, but other people's lives as well. If you just look at the rest of the story, down in verses 25 and 26, Jesus reveals to her that he's the Messiah. You look down in verses 28 through 30, she goes back home and she says to the people that she was pretty much trying to avoid with the rest of her life. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they all came out of the town and made their way to Jesus. You go down to verse 39. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And all of this began in an ordinary place with an ordinary person and an ordinary question, will you give me a drink? Six words. God's heart beats for lost people. We need to embrace that. And we all need to be involved on some level in the process of seeking lost people by just simply being willing to identify someone who's a long way from God and then develop a friendship, discover their story, and discern next steps. To listen and follow the leading of God. Brian can come and we'll close. I have a book in my library called Irresistible Evangelism. And in the book, a woman named Jan who was on staff with a ministry called Athletes in Action tells the story of being at an evangelism con conference with another woman from Athletes in Action. And on the particular day that she talks about, the theme of the conference was the power of listening. We just talked about how important listening is in spiritual conversations. After the conference was over, she said she and the other uh, staffer went back to the hotel and they decided that they would relax in the hotel hot tub. And while they were there, two other young women came and got in the hot tub as well. And one of those young women began to talk to her friend about an upcoming Wicca meeting 
that she was planning to attend. Now, I don't know if you know what Wicca is, but it's a neo-pagan religion. It's a false religion. It's a long way from God, very dark. And Janice, she tells the story, writes and says, normally, we would have tried to counter the girl's idea ideas, but we decided to listen instead. Remember that day in that evangelism conference, they talked about the power of listening. And so I said something like, wow, you really sound excited about this. And that was all the encouragement she needed to launch into a five-minute explanation of why she was so attracted to neo-pagan rituals. The bottom line was she'd had a really traumatic time in high school and a group of Wiccas had accepted her. She said, I've gone through so much crap, I'm just trying to make it through high school that I'll probably be in therapy for the rest of my life. Jan says, I tried to mirror back what she said with, it sounds like it's hard for you to even imagine a future where you'd be free from all the pain you've gone through. And then she says, what happened next completely floored me. With tears forming in her eyes and complete sincerity in her voice, she said, sometimes I wish I could be born all over again. I'd really like to start from scratch. And after a long pause, Jan said, her friend spoke up and asked her, would you really like to be born again? And the young woman said, yes, I really would. Which is exactly what Jesus offers to all of us. The opportunity to be born again. The power of listening. The power of a spiritual conversation something that every single one of us can be involved in and should be involved in because God's heart beats for lost people.